power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, you are a sure and steadfast foundation, a very present help in time of need. And I pray that we would sense your strength. We would sense your magnitude, your glory, and your wisdom as we gather virtually around Hayden and Post Falls and Coeur d'Alene and beyond. Pray that you would strengthen your church. Pray that we would hear what you have to say in these words. And if you would, with me in your homes or where you are, wherever, just pray that the Lord would strengthen your heart this morning through the word. Father, we love you, and we do trust you. It's not something we just say to make ourselves feel better or to put on a show, but we trust you. I ask that you would do at this time what you will for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin today, we're actually continuing our study in Romans chapter 1. And I want to begin by saying a few words to our church to seek to encourage us and to give us a framework for understanding what's going on. And first off, let me just say, as an as a individual and as a member of this church together with you, it's amazing how quickly things can change. Um, a little more than a month ago, no one foresaw this coming. And no one appropriately appreciated, and I say no one in a virtual sense, I'm sure there are some people who sensed that this was coming, but for the most part, we were all just walking along happily in our lives, serving the Lord, loving each other, and then it's no overstatement to say that disaster has struck. Even if you think it's overblown, the response to it and how that has rippled in its effects through our communities and our world is a disaster. And so we're all in this together. So things have changed so much for us. Our objectives remain the same with doing things virtually. We want to protect people and help people be wise. We're not medical experts, so we want to trust those who are and do what we can to honor the government and also protect ourselves and be wise. But I don't want to talk that much this morning about the negative. I think most of you are probably well aware or maybe overly aware of the negative that's going on. I want to give you five pastoral prayers or prayers that I'm praying for our church as we go through this together. First, I'm praying and I'm asking you to pray that the Lord would use this time to strengthen all of our families in practicing family devotionals. I want to say a word to the children who are watching, perhaps even my children from home. Listen to mom and dad and obey and take advantage of this time. 
make sure that you listen and you participate. I know it might be hard, you might want to run to your room and grab more toys, but take advantage of this opportunity to allow Jesus to be in charge of your house as well. And to parents, I know it can be wheels off. It's wheels off at my house sometimes when we do family devotionals, and that's okay. You can still communicate and give the sense of the Lordship of Christ and the priority of His church in the world, even as you minister to them now. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4-9, through nine, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This verse is central to the identity of the people of God in the Old Testament. And immediately after the Shema, you get, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So for us, the people of God under the New Covenant, the obligations for believing mothers and fathers to their children is no different. And this is a great opportunity to take that seriously. The second prayer I'm praying of the five is that the Lord would grow North Star in the ways that matter most. Every church growth strategy or program is all great and sounds flashy until you have a global pandemic. So we're literally, uh, it's just me and Brother Charlie here making sure everything runs right. So we've gone from around 100 two weeks ago, 58 last week to two this week, gathered in the building. So in times like this, what do we have left? Are we still a church? What becomes of us individually? What becomes of us as a group when we can't gather? The church is called the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly of the people of God. But we're still members of one another. We have our commitments that we've made to one another in our church covenant, in our membership process, and in our love for one another and being members of the body of Christ. So pray that the Lord would grow us in those ways, in our, in our commitment, in our love for one another, in our desire to exhort one another every day. Third, pray that the Lord would improve the quality of our faith during this time. Don't waste this opportunity to grow in your faith. We've been teaching through James to our youth uh, in Sunday school for the last uh, five or six weeks. And the whole idea is that you should count the trials joy, trials of various kinds. And a global pandemic is a trial of various kinds, and it includes many trials of various kinds. So to count it joy and to let it produce endurance and let endurance produce hope that's what you should be focusing on as a believer and believing that God is at work to do that in your heart. Pray that you would improve the quality of your faith. See this as a refiner's fire. Fourth, pray that the Lord would show himself strong on our behalf as we trust him. So pray for those who are sick. Pray against the spread of the virus and pray for healing. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the humbling of the flesh in the world 
and the deliverance of the people of God. This is the sense that I want to be conveyed to the world from the church, not just North Star, but all the churches, that on the back end of this, after we're coming through, that everyone would have their own story and things to say. Did you see this? Did you experience that? But the one thing that would be the common denominator for everyone's experiences, but yeah, did you see how the Christians endured this? That was amazing. How they especially came together and encouraged one another and served one another, and even served us. Lastly, pray that the Lord would make us more holy. There is a sanctifying effect of suffering. We're set apart more and more. We are pushed into deeper and higher levels of obedience and holiness through these experiences. And in the midst of this, it is no less true that Jesus' sheep hear his voice and follow him. So take advantage of the affliction and pursue holiness. So those are the prayers. I ask that you would pray those with me um, through this time. So let's get to our text. Uh, we were actually uh, scheduled to discuss this last week, this phrase, from faith for faith. And it's an interesting phrase, and hopefully you'll see some of that as we go through. But I want to begin by talking about a little bit of the grammar of what's going on here. What, what is, why is Paul saying this right now? So you have the flow of the argument, beginning in verse 15. Look back at your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. We might ask, why? Why, Paul, are you eager to preach the gospel? For or because I am not ashamed of the gospel. You could ask again, why? Why, Paul, are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then we might ask, how? How or why? Why is this gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Because, or in it, or for, or because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the implied question, I think, at the conclusion of this, is how does this all work? How or why does this work? Or how is it that the righteousness of God being revealed becomes the saving power of God to me? It's one thing to say that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation just objectively out in the world, but how do I get into that? How do I appropriate for myself the power of God for salvation? How is it that the power of God for salvation in his righteousness being revealed in the gospel is applied to my heart? And this is why he says, from faith or out of faith and to faith, or unto faith, or to the end of faith, for the purpose of faith. And this is particularly interesting because this phrase, from faith for faith, has given commentators and preachers difficulty for hundreds and even thousands of years. Here are some of the questions that have confused people. Why doesn't he just say, through faith, 
or on the basis of faith. That would certainly be true. Why does he say two things, from faith, for faith? Why does he say out of and to the end of? Is he talking about two phases of faith, two types of faith, or two different people maybe, or two different uh, persons or, or people groups? Is he talking about the two covenants maybe, the old and the new covenant? Now, these have all been ideas that have been put forward to explain this. And if you are looking at these verses closely, you'll see that he uses the same word, in, at least in the original languages, four times. The word for faith or belief is the same word. For everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteous of God is revealed from faith, for faith, for in it, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in, in two verses, really, he mentions this word four times. So it's very important and central to what he's conveying to the Romans. So, why does he say it four times? There are several reasons, and some of them we will see soon. But the main point, and I think this is, this is what you should walk away with, is that faith unites us to all this saving power for salvation. And we spent all of last week defining what is biblical faith, talking about what it is not and what it actually is based on the Bible. And I want to pause right here and say that this is the gospel invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you become part of, or you enter into the saving power of God, all of the blessings of salvation are yours through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have not believed on him, if you have not trusted in him for salvation, let today, even in these unique circumstances, be the day of salvation for you. Maybe the Lord has used this very thing to alert you to where you stand with him. Maybe he has used the odd circumstances. Maybe you're in your living room. Maybe the, uh, you're streaming on your device. And maybe all of the changes and all the fear and all of the unanswered questions have made you ask really good, hard questions. Even if you've been a member of this church a long time, a long time attender, or you just haven't asked these questions yet, are you right with the Lord? Have you trusted in Him for salvation? And if you have, there's great encouragement for us there. Even though the world may be confusing, and we may, know, may not know anything about what tomorrow holds, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, then the power of God for salvation, not just from temporal or earthly disaster, but eternal disaster has been applied to your heart. So you are safe, brothers and sisters. And there is nothing that can ultimately harm you if you are in Christ, if you have placed your trust in Him. But let's get back to this phrase. There, there are some interesting things that... Uh, are exposed, I think, in, in this phrase. There are a couple of things that I think may be going on. Three different passages of Scripture uh, that, that expose some of uh, the meaning here. So Romans 3, verse 30. 
Paul says this, Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith. It's actually the same word that is rendered in verse 16, from faith. So he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So maybe what he's saying here is, since he's already introduced the dynamic of to the Jew first and also the Greek, maybe this is a parallel saying from faith for the Jew and unto faith for the Gentile, that it is, it is the, the historical covenantal movement of God that it was always by faith, which is certainly a point in Romans, especially once you get to Romans 4, talking about the faith of Abraham, that it's always been through faith, and, and now it is unto faith, maybe. Also, Galatians 3, 3. Paul says this, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Spirit and flesh in Paul are almost a perfect parallel to grace versus works, especially works of the law. And it's also a parallel to faith versus law as well. So you have uh, spirit versus flesh, grace versus works, and faith versus law. So maybe what he's saying is that in the beginning it is from faith, that you become a Christian by faith, you're united to Jesus by believing on him and trusting on him, but then it doesn't shift away from faith to something else, like white-knuckling obedience, or trying to be perfect. But he's saying that you are being perfected, you are being sanctified through faith in Christ as well. It's not like you receive power from heaven and then you keep yourself on your own, maybe even with that power, in the covenant. There are people that say that. But it is through faith that you trust in Jesus to carry you safely home, not just on that day when you first believed, but every day. It is from faith and for faith, from faith and unto faith. So that may be the sense of what he's speaking of here as well. But there's another passage that may expose a little bit more of what's going on. This is from 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. He says, this is Paul, obviously, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Just as an encouragement, as an aside, that's an amazing verse in this time. Jesus Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. We're always victors in him. For, because, here, here is how that we spread the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, meaning those who are perishing, from death to death. And that's the same grammar that he uses in verse 17. From faith for faith, from death to death, and to the other fragrance from life to life. So it's the, these, are, these are exact grammatical parallels. From faith for faith, from death to death, from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. So, it may be more of just an intensification 
like a snowball effect or a chain reaction. So this fragrance that, that believers in Christ, as we trust in Jesus and as we speak of him to others, for those who are perishing, it is death producing more death as they resist and do not believe and do not repent. But for those who are being saved, it produces life and accumulates to more life. It's a snowball effect. It's compounding. So in the one case, fragrance from death producing more death. And for those who believe salvation resulting from faith producing more faith. Maybe that's what he's speaking of. So I think all those might be going on here. From faith for faith. Paralleling his saving of the Jews and the Gentiles in the exact same way. It's not, it's not like a new plan. It's always been through faith. And it is not for the individual that you begin by faith and then finish by something else. And it is an intensification. It is from faith. You believe in Jesus. And then that faith is supposed to grow and become bigger and more dynamic and more nuanced and reach out and cover your entire life. So maybe all those are going on at the same time. And I think they probably are because I think they're in Paul's heart. But I do want to look at his reference, and this is what we were hoping to get to this week. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul is essentially rooting his claim that the righteousness of God is applied to individuals from faith for faith in this quotation. And it comes from Habakkuk. Practice saying that now, kids at home. Habakkuk. Okay? It's a great uh, Bible name. If we have any expectant mothers out there, just consider that, put that on the top five list, okay? So if you would go ahead and turn to Habakkuk. We'll actually spend the majority of our time there because this passage is actually very important for Paul and for the author of Hebrews. It's not just here in Romans 1.17 that he mentions it. He mentions it also in Galatians 3.11. And the author of Hebrews mentions it in Hebrews 10, 38. It's very important. So let's talk about Habakkuk. This is one of those minor prophets that you kind of sail through. If you finally get there in your Bible reading plan, we're not really familiar with Habakkuk. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful book, and it's so short. And it is so, so deep in its insight and helpful in understanding how it is that God works and operates, especially in a situation like we're in right now. This is the type of Bible material you should be going to and leaning on. So some of the context is this. The prophet Habakkuk is unique in the sense that he has no oracles that he gives to Israel directly. It is all a dialogue between God and the prophet. And he's never commanded to go tell people this. It's just the prophet himself agonizing over things and even complaining to God. So what's going on that would make Habakkuk be so concerned and actually complain to God? And yes, holy people who trust in God, Christians can complain to God. And I would say that's the person to whom you should issue all of your complaints. Because if you're complaining to other people and never taking those concerns and honest questions to the Lord, you're, you're essentially operating faithlessly. So it's actually the most faith-filled action. 
action when you have these questions and concerns and complaints to take them directly to the Lord. And here's how it begins. Habakkuk 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This is the problem of evil. Why does God, who is so good and who says he loves Israel, why is he sitting idly by while the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And what's going on at this time is that Judah is in, uh, 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 all of Judah, the nation of Judah, not the guy, uh, is in decline. This is after Israel has already been conquered and taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And so Judah is alone, and the capital is still Jerusalem, but it's in moral decline and decay. And the prophet, the ones uh, kind of representing the, the remnant, the group who still trust in God, is crying out, why are you letting this continue? Why are you letting these posers rule over us? The law is paralyzed. And I want you to see, note the word righteous. Okay, Righteous and justice are very closely related in the Hebrew text here. So, so we've, we've already got the sense of justice and the law and the righteous as a group of people, kind of the remnant. So that's his complaint. And here's the Lord's answer, verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am rising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreadful and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves, meaning they're a law to themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Meaning they make siege works, ramps to take over cities. They sweep by like the wind, and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. So these people, the Babylonians, are a law to themselves. They're in a sense lawless, but they make their own rules. They don't, they don't regard God at all. Their justice goes out from themselves. And they're guilty. Guilty men, whose might is their God. So if God gave you this answer, if you were to complain to God, if you were to say, justice is perverted, the law is paralyzed, we have no recourse, 
Why do you sit idly by? And God's answer to you is, don't worry, I'm bringing a nation more wicked than you to come and discipline you. How would you feel? Exactly like Habakkuk feels. And I want, just as an aside, and I know that this may feel a little dis disjointed, the whole point of this is to help us understand why for Paul he's citing Habakkuk. We're going to get to it in chapter 2. Why is he citing this, and what does he mean when he says the righteous shall live by faith? And how is he so confident to ground his whole claim that it depends on faith on this one passage? It's written in another passage as well, but this is the, the pinnacle. So here's Habakkuk's second complaint. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Speaking of the Babylonians. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil. You cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous? See, there's that theme again, more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with the hook, meaning the wicked person. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them to his dragnet. He rejoices in his glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, so he's an idolater, and makes offering to his dragnet as he's scooping up all the nations. This is kind of uh, emblematic of Nebuchadnezzar, especially, especially as he conquers the whole world. He's gathering up all the nations into his net, and he's not thanking the Lord. He's not turning to the Lord. He's not recognizing that God is using him to discipline his people. He's still an idolater, not fearing the Lord. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly, mercilessly killing nations forever? So the prophet is stunned in a way, and he's, he's confused. Why, Lord, would your answer to injustice in Judah be to raise up the Babylonians to come and conquer the entire earth? And then he ends in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concern, what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he's waiting on the Lord. So you got these themes of righteousness and the righteous being oppressed by the wicked and the way God solves this is raising up someone who's more wicked to ruin the wicked and to restart essentially and he's waiting on God's answer to his second complaint and that's when we come to verse 2 of chapter 2 and the Lord answered me write the visions make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it for still the vision awaits its appointed time it hastens to the end it will not lie if it seems slow wait for it it will surely come it will not delay. Behold, his soul, meaning the ruler of the Babylonians, is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. 
So essentially, God promises that he will also judge the Babylonians. And we know from Daniel that that happens. Okay? They received swift punishment from the Lord. So God is not so unjust as to not uh, mete out justice equally in the way that it should be. And so God says, wait for my deliverance. Wait for the punishment of the wicked. And then he gives us this phrase, but the righteous shall live by faith. So this is where Paul grounds his theology on why we are united to God's saving power through faith. So let, let me just say a few comments and then we'll, we'll move on. Understand what he's saying. He's not saying that you're going to continue on in the state that you are, just believe. Things will be all right, they'll work out, just believe. Uh, squeeze in your mind enough to kind of uh, be blind to what's going on, but just trust. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, wait for the promises that I have made to come to fruition. I have promised that I will not let Babylon off the hook. I will punish them, and I will bring Israel back. I will gather my nations from afar. I will bring my servant, and you can bring in all the other prophets, all the promises that God had made to his people. So the righteous person will live, the righteous person will last, will persevere from this time forward by faith. And so he's not saying that you could be righteous and not have faith, because if you're righteous and don't have faith, you stop being righteous. That's the point here. Because if it is death that comes, or punishment that comes, for the person who doesn't have faith, then you're no longer considered righteous. There's, there's a close relationship between righteousness here, and this is what Paul is sensing, a close marriage of these terms, righteousness and faith. Because if you don't have faith, you're not going to live. So it's a the best analogy I can think of is, is a courtroom. So we in the United States have a system where you're innocent until proven guilty. Okay, so you're the accused and you are innocent. Like you know you're innocent. God knows you're innocent. But the jury and the people watching and the judge, they don't know that you're innocent. So your innocence is something that is objective. It's there, but they can't see it. So the case that is brought, the evidence that is brought to prove that you're innocent is your alibi, the DNA test, whatever it is. So it proves your innocence. So that's the kind of relationship that righteousness and faith have. If the evidence doesn't support, if you don't have faith, if you don't have trust in the Lord, then you can't say that you're righteous. You're not innocent in that sense. So that you maintain your righteousness, you are righteous today and righteous for all time by trusting in the Lord, faith in Him. And this is what we see in Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1 rather. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. So it's not like you can be righteous and then lose your faith or stop trusting in the Lord and then still be considered righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. So if you don't live, if if you are not trusting in the Lord in this sense in Habakkuk and you're not depending on his promises and that is the basis of your faith, then it's wickedness and perishing. It's not, there's no in-between. So let's go back to Habakkuk. You're still there to stay there. And I want you to see how Habakkuk himself shows us what it's like to have faith. Chapter 3, and, and a lot of chapter 3 is, is Habakkuk lamenting the punishment that's coming for Judah, and the Chaldeans, he, he kind of sees from afar that this is what they're going to do to Judah, and that's what he says in chapter 3, verse 17. We looked at this last week. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And the field yields no food. The flock be cut off from the herd, and there be no uh, from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Let me just pause there, verse seventeen. What happens to us if if everything goes awry? Like we we've got an internet connection, we got video, we got power still going on, we got food, we can still drive our cars. Like what what if things get worse? We think things are pretty bad now, and, and we esteem them that way, but what if they get worse? Are we just going to abandon our faith and trust in the Lord? What if there's no food? What if all the means of production fail, as Habakkuk knew they would with the coming of the Babylonians? Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread upon my high places. That's faith. Even when things get worse, when you know they're going to get worse, or when you don't know at all what's going to happen, rejoicing in the Lord. That the Lord is your hope himself. You don't hope that the Lord is going to do something for you, but your hope is the Lord. That he is your joy and that he will vindicate you on the final day. So the righteous will live by faith in Habakkuk, in Paul's mind, and how we should see it. He's the example of trusting in the Lord no matter what comes. Because for Paul and for first century Jews, the promises here of the restoration still haven't happened. And Christ begins that, in, in, in a way, begins bringing all of Israel from afar and folding the Gentiles in. But the final promise that we see in the Old Covenant regarding the New Covenant hasn't fully happened yet. The glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. We still wait for the promises of God to come at the end of all things. And so the righteous will live by faith. It is from faith in the beginning, and it is looking towards the final fulfillment 
of God's promises. And I think that is the flavor of why Paul so confidently says, for those of us who are being saved, is the power of God for salvation. So, let me ask you a question. We'll end uh, trying, trying to explore this question. I think it's important. Why faith? You ever asked that question or thought about it? Why does God save through faith? Why does God apply his saving power to individuals on the basis of faith? Why does he save this way? Is it just that God wants to make it difficult and hard and hide it so that only those who leave their brains behind and take a blind leap can be saved? No, that's not why God has regard for his own glory and his own fame as the only one worthy of ultimate trust. That's why. Here are a few other reasons why. You can see in the rest of Romans that one of the reasons Paul wants to emphasize and underscore that salvation is through faith in Jesus is because he's wanting to emphasize and remind us over and over and over that it is not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace. But to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So faith and salvation being through faith and trusting in Christ alone is the only way we can secure and protect the gospel as being only by the grace of God and not by our own merit and not by our own works, and not by our own intellect. Faith is the only way to protect it that way. Faith alone takes all the credit away from us and places all the credit squarely at the feet of God. This is why it's so dangerous to present Christianity as a way to clean up your life, or a way to make it all make sense, or a way to get your act together, and you should. You should repent of sin. But it's not a five-step plan to have a better life. It's not a five-step or ten-step plan to have a better marriage or to be a better parent. Because that's bringing something to the table that I'm essentially increasing or improving my standing with the Lord through obedience. That's not how it works. Your standing, your right standing with God is faith alone, grace alone alone. You are perfect in your right standing with God. You are considered holy, righteous before Him in Christ alone. Our obedience proves that this has happened, but it is not on the basis of that. So that's why it must be through faith, because the promise must rest on grace alone. There's also a uh, unity between faith and the New Covenant itself. When you read the Old Testament, one of the things that leaps off the pages is the inadequacy of the Old Covenant. Because, not because there was a problem with the First Covenant, but because of the problem of human unbelief. 
In our family devotionals, we just finished the story of Solomon a few days ago. Have you ever considered that story and how much that underscores our problem? God appeared to him twice. He witnessed the glory of the Lord, the visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord filling the temple such that the priests couldn't even approach. And he witnessed the blessings of God in Israel through his father David. And he was given the most wisdom of any man ever. Yet just a few years into his reign, he starts compromising. He marries the princess of Egypt. He accumulates too much gold. He builds chariots. Has too many servants. He married women to build his political influence, even though they worshipped foreign gods. And finally, he builds temples for these foreign gods on the high places surrounding Jerusalem. So in 40 years, you go from being the wisest man on earth, seeing God appear to you twice, literally speaking to you, to building idols and paying the salaries of the priests who ministered in those false temples. It's not enough. The Old Covenant was inadequate because of the problem of human unbelief. Our hearts will stray left to themselves. So what does this have to do with faith? The promise of the New Covenant is that God will do something at the heart level. He's giving us a new heart. He's writing His law on our hearts. He's giving us the new birth. We're born again. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And so faith is the first cry of the new heart that we've been given in the new covenant. That it's, it's not our trying to make sure we continue to believe, but God has so radically changed us so that our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will continue. And also, faith has to do with uh, calling on the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 11 through 13, this is one we've talked about several times. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That doesn't mean just saying the name of Jesus. Or invoking him in some, like, like a spell to save you. The idea is you are, you are resting your hope in him, crying out to him as the only one in whom you trust. You're calling out to his name, Lord Jesus, save me, even as Peter prayed as he was sinking. And lastly, the reason God saves through faith, it's not so that we would leave our brains behind and just take blind leaps and just believe. It's so much more also than just believing that there was a historical person named Jesus who taught a lot of good, nice things and maybe died on the cross, maybe rose again, whatever. The idea of biblical faith, we mentioned this several months ago in our study of Hebrews, is because it's ultimately about faith in Jesus and his work on your behalf. 
He is the only acceptable sacrifice for your sins and the only acceptable life to be counted to you for righteousness. So faith in Jesus is essentially trusting in him as the only sufficient sacrifice and trusting that his sacrifice is enough and more than enough to cover for your sins. Believing in him as your high priest in the sense that I trust him, that his work on the cross is enough for me. And that is what I claim. That is what I hold to. He is my priest. So imagine yourself, if you can, before the judgment seat of God. Pointing to Jesus and his offering of himself and his holy ministry and service as great high priest and saying, this is what I offer. His sacrifice and offering is sufficient and perfect. Enough to cover all my sins and to make me right before you. And the Father's answer would be to the effect of, You're so very right. Don't you see? The trusting in Jesus is, this is why it has to be through faith, because it is only Jesus' death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, perfect life in our place that can ever bring us to God. So trusting in him is not just like, oh, I believe that he exists. It's believing that that is what I claim for my righteousness. I put Christ forward as all that I have before the judgment seat of God. That is faith. It's not just the day that we come into this union with Christ or the day of eternity, but it is the foundation of our lives now, even in very turbulent times, the righteous, all of us together, those who are righteous by faith, will live by faith. So next week we'll discuss what does that mean for us as a group? We talked about today how this faith applies to us as individuals and what it means for us as people to trust in Jesus and his work on the cross and why that makes us righteous. And next week we'll talk about what this does for a community of believers to conclude our series on the gospel. So let me pray for us. You can send in your questions uh, via email or on the Facebook feed or on the YouTube page, whatever you'd like. I'd love to answer them. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. I pray that this has been helpful to help people understand what we are asking non-believers to do to trust in Jesus. I pray that it has been helpful to show us what it is that actually unites us to you and how faith is so unique and so important in our understanding of what you do for us. I pray that as we look at turbulent times, even as Habakkuk looked at turbulent times coming, that we would live by faith, trusting in you, that your promises are still sure. The hope of entering your rest, the final rest of the people of God, hasn't changed in the slightest. And the joy of the Holy Spirit hasn't changed in the slightest. I pray that we would take advantage of these turbulent times to trust in you even more. In Jesus' name, amen.